Welcome to Chromosphere, the color theory podcast. My name is Ed Charbonneau. I am an artist whose main focus is on painting, and I am also an adjunct faculty member in the Fine Arts Department at the Minneapolis College of Art and Design. This podcast presents a series of conversations about color, color usage, and optics as they relate to theories of human color perception in the making of visual art and design. Today's episode is a correction on the Mary Gartside episode that I first published in season one in October of 2021. In that episode, I described Mary Gartside's work and how I came to be aware of the writing and paintings of Mary Gartside, who lived in England and published books on color theory in the early 1800s. I learned about uh, Mary Gartside's work first from a person named Dr. Alexander Laska, who has written and published many things on Gartside, uh, including a book called Color, a visual history from Newton to modern color matching guides, published by Smithsonian Books in 2019. This is a fantastic book that I recommend all the fans and listeners of this podcast to check out and purchase uh, if you're into collecting books. It's It's almost like a small encyclopedia on color theory through the ages and in it Alexandra Laska devotes a few pages to Mary Gartside and has great examples of the paintings that Gartside made to accompany the theories that she wrote about. The reason this is a correction is that throughout the course of the original podcast recording I went through me tracing the history of, or a history, of abstraction in Western art as I understand it and as I've studied it, kind of the lineage, and plugging Mary Gardside into it, think, wondering if perhaps in the early 1800s these color blot and color ball paintings that she made, could they have been the first abstractions made in, in Western European tradition. And as I was trying to formulate an argument for that, I, quote, I misquoted Dr. Alexander Laska as forming a connection between Mary Gartside and Goethe, who wrote an influential book on color theory called Sir Farber Lyra, otherwise known as... Uh, a Doctrine of Colors, or A Theory of Colors, which was first published in 1810. Mary Gartside was publishing her books in 1805 and 1808. And during my tracing through history, I mistakenly attributed Alexander Laska of, of making a connection between Goethe and and Gardside, which it turns out that I was wrong. 
uh, Goethe did not cite Mary Gardside in his writing. So rather than issue a correction at the beginning of the original episode, I thought I would just re-record the episode as a correction. Mary Gardside lived in England, and she was publishing, she published three books in the early 1800s. They are an essay on light and shade, on colors and composition in general, and that was 1805. And then an essay on a new theory of colors and composition in general of 1808. And then ornamental groups, descriptive of flowers, birds, shells, fruit, insects, etc. in 1808. And I believe the reason that she has two publications in the same year of 1808 is that an essay on a new theory of colors is an updated version of her first publication, an essay on light and shade on colors and composition in general, 1805. So she updated it to be published with ornamental groups. And it's interesting, I believe in the foreword or the first pages of Gartside's um, An Essay on a New Theory of Colors, she writes about the reason for her books. She was an artist herself, worked mainly in watercolors from what I understand, and she was a teacher as well. And so she became a color theorist of sorts in, by, in terms of, of publishing because she felt that her students were trying, you know, kind of moving a little too fast and racing towards wanting to paint like a full composition and, and do very complex things. She thought that they should break things apart and learn individual aspects of the characteristics of colors and how they relate to each other and then apply them to what they're seeing. So they're learning color mixing, they're learning properties of human color vision, like how things harmonize. And so she invented these two genius methodologies that I've actually used in my classes and worked with students and worked with myself since learning about them. It's incredibly simple and yet profound. The first is called a color ball. And you can Google, Google Mary Gartside and color ball and color blot. Those are the two things that she invented and you'll come up with there's pictures of this online and there are pictures of her work in the public domain so this color ball if you can imagine is like a a chart a number of concentric rings like a bullseye only and they're emanating out there's um, several of these rings emanating out from a central point and they're not all the same width they all are different uh, diameters and thicknesses between them. And then in the central area, like a pie wedge, she's painted colors with watercolor. And so it'll be like yellow and a red and a green and stuff like that. And um, she's letting the edges of the colors bleed into each other. So you get like mixtures a little bit. Not, it's, but it, so it's not like a real graphic uh, chart, like a grid type really precise it bleeds a little 
And basically what she was doing, working with her students, is that they were painting flowers. And so they would look at the still life of flowers, and then they would they would mix up the colors that they were seeing and the leaves and the petals and the shadows and where the light was hitting and lay these colors into this chart to, to examine how they look next to each other and how they progress as like a rainbow, like a progression from, from uh, the inner part of the circle to the outer part of the circle. And then the color blots is a variation on this that is where I think it's like really just like one of the most profound things I've ever seen in terms of like a color study is that they, she took the colors that she was observing in the flower still lives and made these blots. They're, they are just kind of like blobs of color. So if you can imagine like they're, they're very like cloud-like, so like a mass of blue and then next to it like a green and a a brown, low chroma, orange, or something like that, and different colors that are all arranged, overlapping each other and bleeding into each other. And some some of them are very chromatic, some are very dull. There's different hue comparisons. So it's basically an abstraction of just the color, just the light that they're observing. And then with each blot, she lists the flowers that they were that they were actually looking at so it's like very specific but it's incredible they're like looking at like turner paintings only like without the the boat or the little the ship or a horizon line and they're not necessarily a storm they're they're just like or like a seascape they don't reference like the landscape or still life or a portrait or any kind of genre of painting of the time and they just are like these cloud-like amorphous abstractions and they're extremely beautiful and like i said they have images in the public domain what it set up was like this amazing way to be able to study how the hue value and chromatic contrast of inner of individual colors interacted with each other because multiple colors could be surrounded by other colors and paired next to each other and isolated or blended and also too they look very gestural and playful they they look studied and i'm sure they were very very studied and purposeful but they are not like rigid they flow and they have a lot of spatial depth. So the reds tend to really come forward on the picture plane and the blues really recede at times. And the subtlety of moving through different low chromatic color shifts is very clear, like how they're observing this. And then it's very clear too, like how value plays a role in the darkest colors versus the lightest colors and how they kind of relate to each other. And going back to that red and blue receding and advancing on the picture plane, that's a phenomenon known as chromostereopsis, which I did a episode on in uh, the first season of uh, the podcast. And chromostereopsis refers to how different light wavelengths focus in different points in relation to the to the retina, where our color vision is the most like acute. So the long wavelengths 
and medium wavelengths and short wavelengths they refract when they go when they pass through the pupil or through the lens and the cornea and into the vitreous humor and when they refract they change direction and so they that cone that's created to focus the lens has to work to focus the colors on the actual retina to make them in focus and that's a process called accommodation and so if you can imagine your lenses are like the muscles around the accommodation muscles they're called i think around the lens are stretching the lens out and scrunching the lens up to make different wavelengths focus all in the same spot and that scrunching and stretching is happening so rapidly that the edges of colors can be difficult to perceive um, or the edges of shapes and it tends to make uh, in many cases it's not a hundred percent it tends to make the longer wavelengths of like reds orange uh, come forward on the picture plane and the blues violets to recede into the distance and Mary Gartside observed this and she may have been the first person to write about this in like a European language uh, in English as far as I can tell she is the first person to to notice this and, and note it in in her writing and so yeah yeah really interesting and so like kind of going off the abstract quality of these things that's where I kind of went astray with my thinking when I've recorded this first episode that uh, you know thank you Dr. Laska for bringing that to my attention so I could make a correction and thanks for being nice to me about it too I had uh, studied years ago uh, this notion that's articulated, well, the way I was introduced to it was through the writing of Thomas McEvely, wrote a book called The Exile's Return, which I want to say was published in 1995. I don't know, I'd have to look at that. But in it, he tracks his theory of how abstraction kind of worked its way through through Western art and kind of brings it back to Turner and those seascapes that he painted and these storms where it's like all this like massive color. But he argues that it never became a pure abstraction because no matter what he did, whatever his painting was, that he always had like a little something in there to indicate like a boat or a horizon, like a like the even the most subtle line where all of a sudden it just became a landscape. It's no longer just a massive color. It's a landscape. And then he takes it through like Monet um, towards the end of his life. I theorized that, that he was losing his sight, and so his paintings became more and more abstract. Actually, there's, a, there's one of his bridge paintings at Givigny. His garden, um, I forget the name of the painting, is at the Minneapolis Art Institute, and I like looking at it all the time. It's like super abstract. It's super almost blasted out, like... It's all red and dark colors and blues and stuff like that. They don't seem to match reality or, or even if the sunset was, I mean, the red is like pretty intense for even the most intense sunset. And the way McEvely talks about it, though, is that there's this evolution through time and through these painters where what he referred to as the figure-ground relationship, the that relationship, the, the, the ground 
dominates the figure more and more through modernism until we get to like somebody like Mark Rothko or Jackson Pollock, where they're just making paintings of the ground. Like a Rothko painting is like this big square rectangle or whatever, a couple of rectangles with a blurred edge next to each other. And there's no figurative element in it. Jackson Pollock's got all the squiggles and stuff like that and paint dripping. And there's no like, well, his first painting, Mural, which is at the University of Iowa. I actually just saw that recently. That has like animal forms in it like a stampede of animals uh, but it's fair, you can see it's like right on the verge of him letting go of any kind of representational element and and then so as McEvely would talk about it like the ground totally takes over and it becomes abstract a pure abstraction I guess they say because you know I mean Every painting is an abstraction of something. Well, I guess they were arguing that it wasn't even an abstraction of anything. It was just itself. It just referred to itself, which I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how that worked out. I don't think that ever... Well, at any rate, there's different schools of thought on that. So, anyway, the most representational painting of like a portrait or something is an abstraction, if you think about it. I mean, you know, it's just paint on a canvas. It's not the person... Well, okay, I'm getting on a side... <laughs> So then with McEvely, he cites that Kazimir Malevich painting the first black square of 1919, I want to say, where it's just a perfect, it's just a square painting with, it's just a, he had a, he had a painting, he had a canvas, it's like 19 inches square or something like that, and he painted it white, and then he inset another square that's black, and so that black square has a border of white around it. And so looking at these abstractions of, of Gartzeit, I really do wonder, I don't think it's part of the lineage. I, I, you know, it's not like documented, but there is this one, I, keep com I come back to this one quote that I've since been thinking about from Gartzeit's new theory of colors in 1808 regarding her color ball. So like the fan-like chart of the abstraction. She was based on the flowers, colors that she observed. And she writes, It will be said, colors arranged in circles in a picture would be very ridiculous, which they certainly would. But that is not meant. It is only intended to show the proper situation for objects of such and such colors in respect to others. Not that there should be entire circles of them, end quote. So she's saying, yeah, this is not what I'm seeing. I don't see them as circles, but that they are studies. And then Gardside proceeds to write further on the color blot methodology. I shall therefore suppose, for the sake of illustration, that each blot is a group of flowers, but must at the same time be observed that they have not been formed with the most distant idea of their being examples in respect to the contour of the flowers. They are merely compact blots of colors, end quote. So I read that, and I was talking about this with my uncle 
And he said to me, you know, Eddie, if she wrote that, it implies that she's addressing the question, are they paintings or not? Are these paintings? Because why would she include a passage like that unless somebody maybe asked her or something or it occurred to her, like, are these paintings in and of themselves just these blobs of color, washes of color, you know, what we would call abstractions. I mean, they're absolutely beautiful. So did somebody walk into her studio and she made these for the books that she published? There's not many of them in existence because she hand painted the plates in each, in each volume. I want to say there's like 20, 20 plates in each. There's a lot of paintings in each one. And so, yeah, I wonder if, like, somebody walked in and said, wow, that's great. Would you consider exhibiting these or something? You know, or, like, where does that statement come from, those two statements? Where do they come from? It kind of makes me think, too, you know, it's like, how many times have I been working on something and my studio mate, like, Jeremy, will come up behind me and go, wow, that's, that's awesome. And I will have been thinking, like, oh, my God, this thing is a disaster. And he says it's awesome, and I'm like, oh, all right, uh, yes, yes, it's, this is exactly what I planned. It's like, thank you. <laughs> but I suppose you can't do that retroactively for somebody 300 years later. I still like the idea that, that she was painting the first abstractions in Western art, even though my theory of how it connects up with Thomas McEvely's theory on the history of abstraction doesn't quite, doesn't quite mesh. But I don't know. Maybe these two quotes that she wrote herself are a bit of clues. Was she considering these things as paintings and just decided that they weren't? They were just color studies. Anyway, well, thank you for listening. And like I said, this has been a a redo for an error that, that I made on the original episode published in October of 2021 on Mary Gartside. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Please share it with your friends and family who may be interested and follow Chromosphere, the color theory podcast on Facebook and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you if you have comments or suggestions. I'd like to thank Jeremy Shapinsky for writing and performing the theme music. Thank you also to Grant Winkles, Susie Manili, and Jeremy Shapinsky again for their production, consulting, and editing. <laughs>